Are you interested in improving your procurement and negotiation skills and understanding? Well, this is the podcast for you. The Procurement Podcast with Andy and Christoph. This week on the uh, Procurement Podcast, we have uh, Mario Adamo. Uh, Mario is, um, uh, has got a, a fairly wide range of, um, of uh, experience, both in industry and consulting. Um, works with GM, McKinsey, Blue Scope Steel. So he's got a, a fairly wide um, view of, of the world. Um, work across multiple uh, geographies as well, both in, in North America, Asia, uh, and also here, obviously, in, in, in Australia. And uh, as always, we have uh, Andy Frank uh, from the Procurement Podcast. Um, Hello, Christoph. Good morning, Andy. And um, Mario, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm very, very well. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Hi, Mario. Thanks for being on the on the Procurement Podcast. Um, just um, just to get things started, uh, Andy, I, I know you've got your favorite questions that you always like to ask. Um, so I think there's a little bit of um, um, uh, a backstory to this before the question. We may say, look, um, on this podcast, there is a, um, a Frenchman, an Italian, and a Brit. Oh, an Englishman, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get that right. Yeah, Be yeah. very careful, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there is indeed. Uh, um, and it, it, it's become a bit of a tradition to ask our guests, and, and firstly, uh, just echoing what Christoph said, thanks very much for, for giving up the time today, Mario. But uh, what I'd be really intrigued to know, and this will come as a, a complete shock to Christoph, but I'm asking this question, is what is procurement? <laughs> okay. <laughs> just a uh, simple, simple, you know, one sentence summary, summary should be fine, I think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, one sentence. Okay, <laughs> yes, yeah, very, very simple. Okay, uh, look to me. To me, procurement is is uh, it, what it isn't. It's not processing a purchase order, uh, which, in my parlance, is purchasing. Um, so, procurement is more a strategic event. It can be a short event one day, or it can be many, many months. But the objective of procurement is to basically come up with a longer term deal which optimizes not just price but a whole bunch of other things like quality, reliability, innovation, TCO, and it does so in consultation with a lot of stakeholders and it's embedded in the organization and, you know, the challenge is to capture the value of that deal. So procurement is a lot more complex and it's a lot more strategic. Fantastic. Now, I have to say, I think that's one of the, the, the uh, more uh, in-depth yet concise uh, answers we had and, and it, it certainly touches all the right points in terms of the the, the procurement piece in you know broadly um how would you, uh, you know, what if that's what procurement is what do you reckon um the, the ideal high performance procurement person uh, what what's in their skill set what's in their locker what what have they got to, to have uh, along you know alongside basic you know basic procurement knowledge? Uh, look, um, I, I don't want to upset anybody and I certainly want to, don't want to uh, alienate anybody. If, if I was going out to look for candidates, uh, high on the list would be somebody with a broad range of skills and typically if you look at education that comes in the form of something like an MBA, uh, which is multidisciplined. Um, if you said, okay, what are those skills? And, you know, it's easy to say multidisciplined. But to me, it's you know, high levels of analytics, very, very good communication skills, the ability to work with stakeholders and comprehend, the ability to actually do 
good problem-solving synthesis, the so what, and the ability to also do what I would call fact-based analysis and then negotiations from there. Now, what you know, if you sort of look at this person, they're going to have had experiences across a number of disciplines potentially, and and good procurement people typically come from another discipline. Uh, they may have an engineering background because of the analytical strength they bring. They may have a marketing background also. You know, mark, good marketing guys typically have a very very strong analytical background, and and more often than not, they really do need to have that word strategy. And strategy is you know very hard to define. And there are many definitions. For me, strategy is really the ability to think at that next level, to sort of bring all the pieces together and put together a concise plan that you can say in one sentence, although yep. or very difficult, but you, you can actually engage the organization and get them committed because that's the only way you're going to make this stuff stick. And so that, you know, that, that, that to me is um, the most difficult thing is finding that person. Uh, Mario, you you mentioned in the, uh, you know the importance of working with stakeholders and you know uh, being engaging the organization. Um, we have a slight little problem at the moment, uh, which is pe- with people working from home. How do you how do you see this happening in in today's world, at least the immediate world at the moment? I think that's a great question, and I'm reading with a great level of interest all of the all of the sort of media, if you like, that's now out there around what's been occurring during COVID, what's going to occur from the transition to COVID to whatever this new normal is in inverted commas that is now coined. But what's interesting for me is I look at it and go, the challenge previously was interactions were difficult. You had to get somebody's time. It you know, uh, the efficiency of meetings, the efficiency of interactions in most organisations is not terribly high for so many reasons, which, you know, we can park them out. However, I think everybody would agree that what used to be talked about 30 years ago when we said, oh, we're going to start working from home, and this, this notion is not new, um, it's never really been pressure tested and actually put in a, in a position where you had no other choice. COVID has done that. Now, you know, that wasn't by choice, as I say, but I think what it's proven to a lot of people, and if you if you talk to people that have been working from home, a great majority of these people are, are actually having a positive experience. The second thing that's occurring is they're much more effective and efficient. The downside, clearly, is that you don't have that intimate human interaction. However, what seems to be emerging in my mind is that things like Zoom, other... Uh, you know, approaches to telecommuting, um, communicating, I should say, um, are really bec- becoming proven that actually this is quite effective. And, and I'll give you a great example. I sat with amazement a few weeks ago and watched uh, a group of people in different locations play a concert, play music together. Um, so what it says is the technology 30 years ago probably wouldn't have enabled that. It wouldn't have. The technology today is there. It's been there for some time. But what's stopped it from being you know, put into play is, is mindsets and behaviours. Well, the mindsets and behaviours have been debunked through COVID. And so now I'm looking at it, especially with procurement, where there is a need to interact with a lot of different stakeholders. There, you know, Good procurement requires you to do 
multiple interactions with the same person on multiple occasions. Uh, you need to interact with internal stakeholders at all levels. You need to interact with external stakeholders. You need to actually do market research. Uh, and all of these things, um, through the proven use of this technology, more, more important, an accepted level of that use, I think opens up an opportunity for much more efficient procurement and also a much more dynamic approach that organisations might take to the way they do procurement. I think that, I think, and uh, I oh, think, Christoph, after yeah. you. So, so, sorry, Andy, I, I was going to jump into uh, into a quick comment here. I, it, typically, you know, when we do projects, uh, we have some level of uh, obviously scopes and expectation and measure of success, which are being somewhat adjusted as the project uh, moves forward. But what this situation seems to um, uh, seems to do is that we have to put a higher emphasis on 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 project-based procurement and set up the scope and the expectation and the measure of success well well um, ahead of time just to make sure that each activity uh, being done remotely delivers against the expectation of the the project both in in the quality of the outcome but also in, in the efficiencies and effectiveness of what is being done. Um, so that puts a, a little bit more um, responsibility up um, into the early phases of the project. I think, Andy, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think that's the case, and, and I think the the points uh, that Mario raised are, are all exceptionally valid. And I think that whole you know the, the stakeholder engagement piece can never be underestimated. You know, some and somehow there's always, there's always an assumption that stakeholders uh, are. Or there previously been the assumption that stakeholders are those who are higher up the food chain, i.e., near as near or at the top table, and that's obviously not the case. It's everybody involved. You have to, you have to get that uh, collective buy-in, and so the the empathy piece and communication piece that you touched on is so so valid. And I think the the, the new normal, for want of a better phrase, is uh, uh, and that the facilitation that. That things like Zoom or Group Skype or whatever might be. I mean, the fact that we're the three of us are in three different locations conducting this podcast is a testimony to the way the technology has enabled us to to move forward. And I think it, it is leading to, to greater efficiencies. Um, I think, you know, sadly for for those uh, um, those uh, actors in in the piece who. Um, who relies solely on the long lunch to secure to secure a, a, a deal might be uh, disappointed. It's not that you know face-to-face interaction isn't the most valuable, but you know the new technology is allowing us to do that, and it's allowing. Uh, I think it's allowing quicker decisions to be made. I mean, in, for example, in my business, Bright Sky Clear Mind, you know, I have to you know, very shuttle back and forth to. To the UK on uh, you know three or four minimum times a year, and you know whilst that's enjoyable, that that it's costly, it takes a lot of time, and just you've got that limited window. Now, the window for conversation and uh, engagement with um, with uh, you know, potential clients or potential you know um, partners or suppliers is has been broadened because the technology enables that, and I think. It will enable us to get to decisions quicker. I think you're absolutely right, yeah. Christoph. That we're, you know, the, the planning piece is is, is more uh, imperative. You, you can't just wing it. 
uh, when you're when where whereas um, you know there's different types certainly different types of negotiating style. There's you know, as we know there's those who just look purely at the numbers. Those who who are inherently tough in their negotiation and and potentially lose value because of their their rigidity of their position. Um, and then there's the deal maker, the somebody you know who will completely wing it, have no idea, but will will manage through sheer force of personality. Um, and I think these days, I think this new technology, there'll be space for some of that, but I think it will, there'll be some far more fact fact based decisions. And again, comes back to your point about the analysis uh, and uh, and how we can take the business, our individual businesses, whether we're you know, Whichever side of the table that we are on in the negotiation, we're there to get to the next level. Yeah, and look, let's, you know, I think there is a thematic here also that if you look at the definition of procurement in the way we've been speaking this morning, the, the challenge is finding people who are able to do that remotely. Um, the challenge is also for organizations to Develop and maintain those people, and and, uh, and the reason I say there's challenges because a lot of people there's two types of people that can go to procurement. There's the professional guy that's going to, you know, he or she's going to be there for a long time, and that's what they're going to do in their life. And then there's the transitory. Oh, I'm going to do this for a while because I want to pick up some acumen, commercial acumen. Um, and and so there's always a challenge in the organisation. And I think this now, and I've always had this view that, look, we've all been through these cycles in various corporations where, oh, we'll outsource and direct and we'll bring in a consultant and, well, we can't hire a person. And so everybody's tried all these different things and, and ultimately some of them stick and, some, and many don't. But I think the challenge right now, I think, with COVID is, you know, you, you've got recessionary-type uh, business situations. That's, that's the first point. The second point is people are very unlikely to want to hire people right now. And the third point is they actually have a very dire need for a whole bunch of resetting of their supplier arrangements. That's there's no doubt. And so because of that, my view at the moment is that uh, they should be looking at taking advantage of the fact that there is the ability now to do this stuff uh, much more effectively uh, virtually, you know, if that's the term for it, and and I think they, people should look into that very, very carefully. Uh, but but also understand that go back to Christoph's point, it requires a lot of planning. And as we both know, good procurement actually has, you know, I used to say to people, let's say a procurement event's going to take fourteen weeks, and when I'd say to them, the first six weeks is planning, and what I mean by planning is before you start interacting with the supplier, you're doing all of the work you need to do to be ready. Uh, but people would be in shock. Well, why are you going to take six weeks to do that? Well, if you're going to do this in a very fact-based, knowledgeable way, do the analytics and all that sort of, uh, you know, what is required, then it does take time. But if you then, and then, but if you do that, once, once you go to execute, the execution, two things occur. You're in control. Um, more often than not, and also it goes very, very quickly because you know exactly what you're doing, and you know, you know, you already know the answers and effect. So this whole, you know, to me, I'm quite excited because I do think that organisations have an opportunity now to go 
actually there is a new way to get procurement outcomes and and uh, and it can be a lot more effective for them. It can be a lot less uh, risky, not just the uh, actual procurement deal, but the actual activity of procurement itself, because it can often be a little bit uh, unknown as to whether you're going to get a good deal or not a good deal, etc. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, absolutely. I, I I think the the interesting point you raise about the sort of the two types of people, you know, the, the career procurement person or somebody who wants to boost their own uh, acumen is is interesting, and I I think there's there's a potential for almost some somebody a role that slots between those, which is for bigger organisations. I can see there becoming a requirement that any prospective uh, uh, CEO will have at some stage spent some time within the procurement function because uh, there's so much opportunity that can be uh, extracted from you know, a healthy, robust procurement function. And yeah. those, yeah. those organisations who choose to ignore it or see it just purely as an adjunct of the finance department uh, are going to lose out. Yeah. Oh, look, look uh, it, you, you trigger, you trigger a, a conversation I had a... Uh, Conversation I had with somebody who asked me a question about the state of Australian procurement, and I just returned from overseas, um, and it, it's a loaded question, and you've got to be very careful how you answer such a question. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so what I did was I didn't really answer the question, but what I did is I gave, <laughs> I gave examples of what I thought was good procurement, and I give two great examples. Right. I worked at General Motors, and we often talk about these horizons of procurement. And you know, when procurement reaches that final horizon, and you know, there's no such thing, obviously. But you know, this horizon where you've got a seat at the seed sweet table, um, you are actually helping to add a lot more impact to the to the bottom line through developing new products and bringing innovation and all these sorts of things. And so, when I was at General Motors. Um, that was an example of what I thought was excellent procurement because it was done globally, even though things were done locally, and it had a lot of innovation as part of what it did. So it was looking for innovation. It, it was building it into the way procurement worked. Procurement was actually responsible for bringing innovation in many, many ways, not just the engineer designing something, but okay, we go out there and we see a new technology and making that plastic mould, for instance, or having you paint a car. And all. And this is interactions of procurement we have with the supplier. So to me, that was very, very good procurement. That actually existed in Australia at the time. Um, it doesn't obviously any longer because the auto industry is now closed down. The other example, which is an amazing example, is the Japanese uh, automakers. I spent quite a bit of time in uh, Nagoya and work through a company called Toyota, which is the Japanese, real Japanese name of Toyota, as we know worldwide, but in yeah. Japan it's Toyota. And if you go and talk to those people, what they do is quite amazing with the suppliers. They are working so closely with the suppliers, they hardly ever have a written contract, but they have a vested interest in the success of that supplier, and they work to ensure that the supplier brings the best of technology into their manufacturing uh, facilities and the way they do things, and so you you look at that as a pinnacle. Uh, certainly, at the time when I was asked the question, that to me was a pinnacle of what procurement could bring. And when you say, okay, if, if you aspire to that, what would it take? 
and maybe we don't go all that way. Maybe we still have, you know, um, we, we can't, we don't really need to go there potentially. But I think if you start to aspire to think about what it could be like those examples, then I think you are, you then challenge the mindset around what procurement traditionally is in a lot of different organisations around the world. I think that well, that's very um, very much in, in line with I think with uh, our thinking on on the podcast. And certainly, um, I, I, my fascination with the particularly with the Japanese automotive industry and in particular Toyota, just the, you know, how they you know, embraced Kaizen as a, as a as a starting point, and then procurement in, within its within that mindset uh, then became. Uh, something truly remarkable, and you know, I I envy you having had that real face to face experience because it, it must be uh, fascinating. But it also uh, I also got to say, uh, well done for for sidestepping, uh, uh, stating the, the, ob- <laughs> the obvious about about well, say not not just Australian but but you know British British procurement as well. Um, very, very well, very neatly done. <laughs> uh, Mario, you, you mentioned that uh, GM had a fantastic global procurement practice. Um, Today, we need to be careful as to the word global because if we are talking about supply chain um, issues, uh, well, global um, movement is is impacted with this uh, COVID-19. So we have to look into uh, de-risking the supply chain in some ways to ensure that organizations are not um, impacted negatively by being too reliant or too dependent on um on the global supply chain, which is it should be hard because you're trying to get the best price and, and all the latest technology down to we need to survive. Yeah, look, um, what what I fear is that the pendulum will swing too far the other way, and and Australia. Let, let's talk about Australia as one example, and I, and I'd like to talk about the US very quickly as well. Um, we as a country are not a manufacturing country ostensibly anymore. And, it, and where we do have had manufacturing, it, it, is, it is not um, at scale. Most, most manufacturing in Australia suffers the fact that it cannot, can't reach minimum efficient scale. And hence why the auto industry left the country. And, and I could talk ad nauseum about that because I wrote the strategy for the government around uh, whether they were going to close it or not. And so... If you cannot reach minimum efficient scale, however, you've got the, the, the border issue or you've got the risk issue of inter, inter, <coughs> you know, inter-country movements, at some point, though, people will solve for that problem and those people will win the game. So I think, you know, you want to be very, very we all want to be very, very careful economically that we don't shut down the global supply footprint opportunities. But what we do need to do is say, okay, well, what was mistakes did we make? And and, and there's some obvious ones, right? Um, you sold source, for instance, out of a particular country, not just China, but Poland, Brazil, and there was a whole bunch of these countries that people sort of ran to or defaulted to. And consultants, mostly, it was driven by uh, consultant advice. So then my view at the moment is don't let the swing, pendulum swing back where we start having conversations of, oh, let's, <clears throat> let's bring manufacturing back to Australia, for instance. Well, let's bring manufacturing back to the US because the US is in a much better position because it can reach on many, many levels minimum efficient scale. Um, 
but then you'll you've got to sort of look at it and say, well, there are certain natural owners of certain things, and those natural owners typically are country specific. So you know, back to uh, Porter many many years ago, uh, where you know, very famous book written about uh, inter inter country competition, mm -hmm. and and those things are they're real. And so when you look at procurement, it'd be It'd be a great shame if you didn't consider the global footprint. What you now have to do is say, okay, there's this inherent level of extra risk that we need to cater for. The other thing that I think is very important now is we've had some challenges with supply chain and procurement, right, and the definition of those. In some industries, they use supply chain and procurement doesn't exist. Mining is a great example of that, typically. But I think now this will force procurement and supply chain to become two things, much more knowledgeable about each other in a traditional sense. And secondly, they must work together in a much more uh, total cost of ownership perspective. So no longer is it just I've got the deal. It's much more about, okay, I've got the deal, but I'm going to buy it from three different locations around the world. I might manufacture some of it locally. I'm going to change the risk profile and I'm not going to expose myself to a catastrophic event from one particular supplier. And so I think, you know, that's a long-winded sort of no. comment and it's very complex, but I think what I, you know, would advise people if they were asking me, I'd say think very carefully before, you know, we overreact. But that's interesting though because one organization might want to have a, a portfolio approach uh, to the supply base uh, based on geographic locations or, or capabilities and, and spreading the risk across. While whilst a, a competitor might say, look, I'm willing to take the risk and, and then undercut, you know, for sim imagine the, imagine similar products, but undercut uh, is competitor on price and, 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 and being able to gain market share that way. So it's how do you convince an organization that um, you may want to de-risk in case of COVID-19 happens again versus one that is willing to take a lot more risk and, and like you say, sole source uh, a supply in order to gain market share. And potentially, if COVID-19 never happens again, they'll be ahead in the market. But if it does happen again, they'll be in big trouble. So it's... Well uh, I think I've been thinking about this a lot, right? And um, my wife keeps reminding me about the last time this happened in uh, nineteen, the, the the Spanish flu, right? Yeah, uh, over a hundred years ago. So some some uh, some statisticians might say, "Oh, it's only going to happen. It's a one in a hundred event. So therefore, um, why worry? Because we've just had the one in a hundred, um, but." History doesn't necessarily repeat itself, and I think the issue is that people are now looking back at the cost of the decisions they made about sole sourcing, and those costs are enormous, and so hence the sort of bit of a knee-jerk reaction from some people. Um, a lot of it's talk at the moment, not necessarily action, but I think Christoph, what you have to do is you have to say, look, I need to actually get a bunch of smart people in the room as my business and some advisors and talk about what is the global risk profile going forward, be it 
uh, disease, be it economic risk, be it in, in, uh, inter-country instabilities, uh, be it the, the threat, you know, there's this perceived threat of the new world order of countries, you know, not just China, but obviously there's other other countries that are emerging. Um, and and so it's that sort of thing that it basically says, look, um, you do have to look at the risks. You have to get a bunch of smart people in the room. Hey, guess what? People who actually know this a lot are procurement people uh, because they tend to have do this day-to-day. They do look at country risk, good ones, will look at country risk. And they'll understand country risk not just from a, you know, a CIA report. They'll understand it from the fundamentals of that country. That, you know, who are the politicians? What's the leadership? Uh, what's the religious uh, goings on in the country? How does that impact? You know, what's the economic stability of that country? What's the investments in those countries? What's the history and what's the future policies? And procurement people tend to look at all of that stuff and then can provide input. Not the only person in the room, but they can provide input to the key decision makers in the organisation that decide one way or the other what they're going to do. I think it comes down to uh, being nimble and responsive um, and have a strategy in place to uh, to be um, very nimble and responsive in terms of some in case something does happen uh, in order to keep the business trading profitably. And, and being nimble and, and responsive within the organization means being able to adapt uh, to various situations, both from a process, from a technology, from a people, from a supplier side of things. And I'm not sure if, you know, uh, people and organizations pretty much, you know, we all act in a very similar way. When things go well, we just tend to become happy with the status quo and, and we refuse to uh, to plan for you know for the worst we don't run simulations we don't run simulation when business grow we don't run simulation when business um, uh, have issues like uh, economic recessions uh, and so we are becoming comfortable just trading doing the day-to-day activities doing the ad hoc improvement but if we were to develop a strategy that is nimble and responsive for just in case something were to happen, uh, I think being able to act quickly with your staff, with your processes, with your suppliers, with your customers is paramount to the success, the long-term success of an organization. And you cannot do that if you don't have a strong pulse both on the customer and on the supplier as well. The in-between, the organization needs to be able to, you know, expand and retract as required. But I think being able to have the, the pulse on the customers and being able to drive the, you know, the, the, the stimuli or understand the stimuli that customers is giving the organization and respond to that by working closely with your, with your suppliers in the same way that uh, Toyota did, uh, it's, it's super important, I think. Yeah, and I think it's the... the, the there is an obvious requirement for remodeling of, of so many aspects of the way we do business. And I think that a more integrated approach from procurement within organizations, again, comes back to the point about, it, you know, it's not about being uh, automatically being at the very at, at the highest table, but it, you need to have very clear communication lines to the ultimate decision makers in every organization. And procurement needs to be regarded uh, as having that holistic approach, uh, whereas you know, right from the beginning of our conversation, is a it's not about purchasing, um, and I think the point 
Um, you raise Mario about uh, procurement and supply chain. Um, I think smart businesses all, have already got a very uh, unified approach. They're, they're, you know, there's, there's still clear demarcation because uh, that's most probably best for uh, good practice. But at the same time, there needs to be uh, a, a more integrated view. And again, as, as we often come back to on the procurement podcast, it's, a, it's about making sure that procurement is, is better understood uh, across a greater number of organizations, not only um, your organization, but your, your, your customers and your suppliers as well. Yeah, and look, um, it, it does remind me of, well, it reminds me of previous experience in the auto industry, but also an observation of some of the things that I've been watching in the supply base uh, around the world. Um, and I think, you know, Christoph, you said it about, you know, uh, this basically um, scenario planning. And and if we look at the nimble side of this, my experience is that uh, from GM was a lot of suppliers have an unbelievable number of abilities, but they focused in on doing, you know, this little piece, but they, their capabilities are way beyond that. And, and, and if you sit down and plan with them and say, look, what if this happened? Could you do this for us? Or could we, you know, could you switch your manufacturing facility to make that? And so that sort of stuff was sort of happening at GM to a degree. But the observation recently is I've been amazed at, you know, certain types of manufacturers have suddenly switched to manufacturing things that are in short supply, be it medical supplies, be it other things. And um, it does show that supply bases can be, not all, but can be very, very nimble, very, very capable. Uh, and so if you go through that scenario planning, it's a matter of, okay, who in our supply base, if we end up with uh, an event, be it a recession, be it an outbreak, be it, uh, the supply line is shut down between these three countries or we can't do international trade anymore. You know, what is the solution to that? And I, and, and I do think that, um, that planning wasn't done. So there was a lot of catch up with a lot of different reasons around the world. Um, and then there, and then, but it did prove that people can, once the decision is made, they can actually do it. And so again, the organisation needs to think through that and have strategies for it. So it might be, uh, back to your point, Crystal, it might be that the organisation, I've been talking to a medical organisation, in fact, I've talked to a recent organisation in Australia, they own a bunch of hospitals, and their number one focus three weeks ago was, we want to source out of China. Uh, We want to shift 90% of our sourcing out of China. Now, that's in the face of what's going on today. So there are still people that are prepared to take all that risk, but at the same time, they do need to do exactly what you're saying. What are the scenarios if this thing was to happen again in six months, 12 months, 24 months' time, or whatever it might be? Uh, Mario, did you, have you come across, um, both in your consulting days and, and industry days, a lot of organizations doing this scenario planning? Uh, I think it's rare. Uh, I think it's rare. And when they are doing it, I'm not entirely sure that the right people are in the room. That, that's, an, that's an observation of what I've seen. And that was, that was predominantly my work 
uh, at McKinsey when they would bring us in, in to do, you know, operational business strategy pieces. Um, and so I do think that not a lot of execution of that. Uh, is the capability in the organisation? Often it is, um, but it just hasn't been tapped into and, it, and it's certainly not ready to go. So there's lots of capability in most organisations to do this stuff, uh, but they're not practising it. So, you know, if they go to do it, they're not terribly good at it because it's a bit rusty or they don't have the right, you know, the simple tools you need to do this. isn't. You know, I don't believe it's overly complex to do it, but there is certain methodologies and certain processes you need to do to do it, right, uh, that, that are better than others. And uh, so to answer your question, I certainly uh, would have seen it rarely. Yeah, so that, that's my my take on this as well because um, I think organizations, when, uh, when they do um, do run the business on a day-to-day basis, th- this is not the, the sort of things that you want to plan for. And, and I'm not sure the resources are being put uh, toward or you know, allocated to a team to just do scenario planning just in case something happens because that's a pretty expensive exercise too. Um, and um, it's, uh, I think it's necessary uh, to run simulations. Um, it may not be seen as something really useful at the time when everything is, is nice and clean and the business is working fine. But over time, I think uh, when something like this happens, uh, it's, it's critical to be able to react um, quickly to, you know, to to deal with your suppliers, decide which suppliers to keep, which uh, products to uh, to get rid of, what uh, customers you want to target, and do that very quickly, as opposed to being in crisis mode and getting rid of people just because there's not enough money. Um, so just a, qu- a question on that. Um to, to both of you, really, do you thinking, do you think that there there are particular aspects of, of the industry uh, of uh, comparative industries where you say, for example, uh, the uh, car industry are are good at this, these sort of planning scenarios, or do you think it's individual organisations, or do you think it's in, uh, more just down to individual managers and how they're remunerated and their their rel- their their vision of what risk really means, um, because I, you know, I've worked in businesses where exceptionally risk averse uh, and uh, scenarios are, are done all the time, and you know, working uh, at, at, for a major newspaper publisher, you know, they had complete risk scenarios around their presses breaking down, being able to, mm-hmm. to transition presses, press printing within half an hour of there being a problem. To, to to other publishers who said, well, we, you know, we've we've never had a, none of our presses have ever broken down, and then and then three months later there was a flood in in uh, a part of England which uh, completely filled up the press hall for two weeks, uh, and there was no alternative scenarios. So how you know, and then somehow then that became a problem of the printer, not not the publisher, because the printer said, well. You haven't. Uh, the publisher was saying you haven't managed to get our our, our magazine out on sale, and therefore we're going to charge you uh, uh, for a consequential loss, which seemed pretty harsh because nobody could predict that river was going to burst its banks. But so um, I, I've sidetracked slightly, but it comes back to that thing yeah. about you know where you know that real 
understanding of risk resides? Is, is it industry? Is it business? Is it individual? Or a mix of all three? I think it is a mix of all three, but I do think that where you see it manifest overtly and in a very powerful structured way is in organisations that have leaders who understand this. And either that's they've been trained that way or they've had personal experience. And, you know, great organisations like DuPont, um, sorry, I'll say that differently. I've seen it in organisations like DuPont. Um, I won't express my opinion of their organisation uh, overtly, but, you know, DuPont clearly think about their business, um, had very, very high-risk um, activities that required a level of, of uh, contingency planning. But other organisations were similar and didn't have it. So it does come down to the culture and the, and the culture is, you know, to me, culture is more than... More than often, you know, a very high number in the 90s is manifested by the leadership. And so when you look at good organizations that do what we're talking about, they typically, you look up and you'll see leaders who are very able to uh, understand this and allow the investment or the cost to be part of their, um, you know, their, their, um, their balance sheet. And, and because, because Christoph, you said it before, this thing is expensive to do if you're going to do it seriously. Um, and so it's an investment, uh, but it's the right investment to make. But, and therefore that investment typically needs the sponsorship of, you know, the ELT leadership team. Uh, and, and the mindset behind it has to be there. Yeah. I think it is expensive. However, it is not. Uh, something that is useful only if there is a major recession or major economic downturn. It's, it is something, when you look at the risk level of an organization and, and the potential uh, de-risk mitigations and the strategies and, and the things that you need to put into place, um, this is pretty much day-to-day -day business where if you do have all those strategies into place, you don't have to wait for a major global economic downturns. Those can be applied for situations where a competitor comes in with a new product or there is a breakdown in a particular supply chain where it is not just in case of a, a major drama happens, but if you do fully understand uh, the risk and the organization, organizational risk, like in the automotive industry, it's global supply chain. Other industries, it will be more um, national or regional based where you are able to pretty much understand all the variables and the how those variables interact with one another to have fully a cause and effect diagram across the organization on how to mitigate those issues if they do happen. So when they do happen, whether it's a very, um, very uh, simple, very minimal level versus a very dramatic level, the organization is able to respond rapidly, both in people, process, skills, technology, leadership, communications, dealing with suppliers, uh, dealing with customers, messaging, the, the whole lot, where you have um, almost like a, I think yeah. there is a military term that says a quick response team or, or something like that, where yeah. bang, something yeah. is, is, is fixed straight away. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think there's also a manifestation these days of, of acceptance of 
And you and I used to work at EDS, and it brings back the memory of a very famous advertisement they had, which was, you know, building the plane while they were flying it. And it sort of has manifested these days into things like Agile uh, or the Agile uh, approach to, you know, ERP implementations. And I think these things are not necessarily proven out, but they're being attempted, which is really saying, look, we're not going to sit in a room and just take forever to make a decision. We're going to actually make decisions on the fly a little bit. But also when a, when something occurs in our business that threatens our business or is an unusual event or is unexpected, that we have the ability to make some fairly quick decisions with a level of confidence um, and we have processes to support that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly not, uh, espousing agile in the answer. What I'm really saying is, I think you're right, first off. I think you're right, Andy, where you say, look, you know what? Um, we do need to be able to respond to these uh, events. Um, and a great example is, you know, you're running an FMCG business, you've got a whole bunch of products, and one of your competitors releases a new product and essentially takes you by surprise. This stuff does happen. Um, and what do you do about that? Well, if you are nimble and you're able to sit down in a room and problem solve pretty quickly, you can launch a new product within days if you really want to. But a lot of good organizations haven't practiced that and they end up having, you know, meetings and meetings and meetings. I've seen this happen for six months before they do something. Well, at that point, um, the market share is gone and very, very difficult to get back. And so, so there are so many great examples in real life where it's not a catastrophic event, but it's an event which, if you ignore it, um, you suffer. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think that, that's very true. I mean, I, I've, I've been there on both sides of that. Um, and uh, interestingly, one of the stumbling blocks hasn't been about the, the physical manifestation or even the, the, the design of the, of the, uh, um, the product to, to blunt the attack from a, the, the opposition. It's been the marketing story that it needs to accompany it. Yeah. And, uh, where, where you, so, uh, it was, uh, it was some, some glasses, sunglasses that have been man, manufactured by, by a competition, uh, were trusted to the market, became very fashionable in, in, overnight because of some very well placed endorsement by a, um, by a film star. It would have been, it would, very easy to to produce something that would be uh, suitably distracting and um, uh, agile in the sense of being, you know, saying, you know, this is, you know, well, and you thought that was good, well, this is even better. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it, it, it had been designed, but the, you know, with you know, overnight, you know, how about this? And then the, the marketing story took you know, nine months to come to fruition, and and, and, it, was, and it was game over. Yeah, thanks very much. We've all moved on. Yeah, yeah. But it, it comes down to being able to, uh, you know, when you you talk about uh, agile. I mean, this is a nice term, and it's, it's it sounds sexy and all that, and we've got to be agile and, and all this. But I've got a simple question that I always ask: is unless you know the exact profitability of a product, you are not agile. If you know the exactly exact profitability of a profit of a product, uh, and you know all the processes, the time, the resources, the the IT costs involved, all the variable costs involved, and all that, unless you have done this homework beforehand, you are not agile. You are partially agile on a 
partial project or process, but you are not an agile organization. So in order to be fully agile, you have to understand the profitability of the product and everything that comes into that product, from revenue to cost to profit, the processes, the people involved, the time allocated to each of those products, then you are fully agile and then you can fully respond to a situation. Yeah. And look, it, it does come back to something we were talking about earlier about analytics. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of big consulting houses now have massive analytical you know, um, capabilities and, they, and they're selling that as, as a tool. And be it whether it's you know um, you know analytics at a, at a very macro level or, or even a micro level, but I think the point you make I think is very valid. And I had a very good experience 25 years ago when I worked at a FMCG company, and they didn't know they actually didn't know the profitability of every product, and so I was tasked to build a model to demonstrate the, the profitability of each product manufactured in many different sites. And when I presented it, people were amazed. But what it led to was making decisions for the first time in the, in the light of facts, not gut feel. And, and I think you're right from the sense that if you don't understand that, then what chance have you got? Um, just one other thing to that. When I was at McKinsey, I learned this thing called problem solving. And um, essentially, they use, they use trees, right? And, and, and one of the key tools is a cost driver tree or a value driver tree or whatever you want to call yes, it. But yes. essentially, it's the mathematical model that drives profit. And Absolutely. we've all done this in, yeah. in case studies, right? Well, a lot of people have never sat down and built that. And it's, you know, some people call it the economic model. But what did you call it? If you don't understand that and try and build it, then you then you know you're you're making decisions a little bit blind. Absolutely, no, I totally hundred percent agree to this, and and have each product should have its own PNL and and fully understand the uh, the mini um, uh, organization that is involved into moving that product from concept to product development to creation to selling to everything. And what's amazing, what's amazing, Christoph, sorry to interrupt. I, I want to give you this one example. I did a little, uh, I did a um, project in, uh, in North Carolina in a high tech industry with printed circuit boards. And we were tasked with taking 40% of the cost of the printed circuit boards. So it was a very large telecommunications infrastructure company. Had a lot of suppliers doing printed circuit boards around the world in many locations. We ran through a process over five or six months, and what occurred was we brought to light to the suppliers their actual cost driver or their economic models by product. I won't go into how we did it. You know, that's another story. However, a number of those people um, discontinued. You know, Most of them had hundreds of SKUs, and a lot of them were starting to now say, now that you've shown us this as a, a buyer, educating us as a supplier on how to look at this, uh, they started to discontinue some of their lines, which they thought were profitable, but were not profitable. That's right. And so it, it sort of highlights that, that that approach to looking at and understanding, uh, and if you are really good at procurement and you sit down with suppliers and open up the uh, dialogue and start to talk about working together, truly working together, 
and using tools uh, that are fact-based um, and where the penny falls, it falls, then, you know, you build very strong relationships. And, and in fact, they were thanking, uh, they were thanking uh, the buyer for helping them understand their own business. Uh, I, I totally agree. I had a similar experience with a retail company and, and uh, we did a full activity-based costing um, of all the product lines. And, and three of those products um, were highly successful from a revenue side of things. And when I presented the information to the CFO, the CFO said, look, um, I said, those products, you need to stop selling them or change the pricing because yeah. it will hurt you. And he said, no, Chris, that's 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 not possible. We're selling so many of them. I said, keep selling them is going to cost you even more because there's just too much time and effort into selling those products. You are not making any money. You're actually losing money on those products, even though they are driving a lot of revenue. Uh, and to get the message across was was really difficult because the effort that it took the the staff to sell those products far outweigh the profitability of those of those items. Absolutely, I mean it's it's fascinating. You know, th- there's so much more we can go into. Um, you know, I think this is. This, this is going to prove to be our longest uh, longest podcast yet, don't you think, Crystal? I did warn you, Andy, that uh, Mario was the man to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been fascinating. And, and just, it's a real pleasure. It, I, well, just I think it'd be nice to. It, uh, um, I think we need to wrap up, but um, Mario, uh, in terms of, I mean, thank you. A, thank you so much for your contribution. It's been absolutely fascinating, and and uh, there's a lot of really strong takeaways from this. But in terms of. So, you know, almost like a, a message to the next generation of procurement uh, professionals. What, you know, what, 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 what words of advice, sage words of advice have you got for them? Uh, look, I do think that, um, you know, people should see it as a profession and not a, you know, not a, uh, a, a transitory role, it, it, you know, and, 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 and there's no reason why you can't do that, but I think you should see it as a profession and you should be proud to be in procurement. Um, and my uh, my advice to anybody that's young, I always say to them, look, this is the most strategic role you're going to get in an organisation typically, and it is it is uh, very very satisfying if you exercise everything that's that, that you do as a procurement person. Um, the challenge is you've got to get the organisation to come along for the ride and understand who you are. And the way to do that is to actually demonstrate the value you bring. Now, a lot of that's motherhood. I get that. But the reality is that's actually the truth of what you, you know, you've got to do. Absolutely. Well, I think that, that's, a, that's a pretty much a great way to, to wrap up. Yeah, fantastic. Mario, um, I'm assuming you're available for, you know, uh, for support, either coaching, consulting to organizations and people. What is I the... Said, yeah. What is the best way for people to reach you? Um, well, the best way is uh, uh, you can just reach me on my LinkedIn profile or you can reach me through www.aitherconsultingpartners.com. And fantastic. And I'll send you the link for Yeah, we'll, we'll put all those links in the, in the podcast. Uh, Mario, uh, fantastic to uh, speak with you again and, and thank you again uh, for your contribution today. It's been, it's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Christoph. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Procurement Podcast with Andy and Christophe. For more information, please visit our website, procurementpodcast.com, and feel free to email us your questions at info at procurementpodcast.com.